Good morning. If you uh, have been here for any of the conference, um, you'll know that something has come up a number of times, and, uh, and it has been about whether or not we should be teaching Old Testament and then, of course, Bible prophecy. The whole conference was on Bible prophecy. So this isn't really, it shouldn't even be a question. But let's put aside a, a couple of those things and let's deal with, with the teaching of the Old Testament. Um, when I heard that and that started to be popularized, it's been popularized in the non-Calvary Chapel circles forever, but it started to be said openly around Calvary Chapels, and I just thought, what a ridiculous thing, because who gave us license to say what's good and what's not good to be teaching on Sunday mornings? And so being the rebellious type that my wife is, uh, <laughs> I can't even blame her for it, I thought, you know, let's do a Sunday morning book and we'll do Old Testament. Now, most people, when they say Old Testament, they'll do the book of Psalms. That's easy. Book of Proverbs. Those are pretty well worn. Um, but I thought, let's do the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. So we think of the prophets. We think of Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know, if you take them in sequence, and then Ezekiel and Daniel, and, and a couple of the minor prophets. Zechariah comes to mind, maybe, you know, maybe Jonah. And so we know them by name, but Zephaniah is an interesting character. And uh, I noticed this morning as David was doing his session that his session touched on some of the passages out of Zephaniah that I'll, I'll be dealing with this morning. And when we looked at this on Sunday mornings, we wanted to say, would Zephaniah have anything to say to the church? And you'll be amazed at what was happening in Judah at the time is exactly what we see happening in many of our churches today. Now, going back to this matter of prophecy and teaching of Bible prophecy, if you were here for David's session, you'll know that what David had to say was much out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And why is that significant? Why is that important? Because he's speaking about prophetic matters. Keep in mind, if you know the story of, of his time at Thessalonica, it was for three Sabbaths. So if he was there for a day or two before or after, the most he spent there was a month at most. Just three Sabbaths and then maybe a day or two here or there. And yet, if you were here listening to what David said, the very first words in the fifth chapter are now concerning the day of the Lord. You don't have need, my paraphrase of me reminding you of these things. You know them perfectly. Have you ever stopped to consider what he just said there? When it comes to matters of eschatology, because he's already dealt with the rapture in chapter 4, chapter 5 he deals with the day of the Lord, and he says, I don't need to necessarily repeat these things, you already know them. This was a church that was a month old when he left it, and they already knew those things? That means that Paul was careful to teach them such things. Eschatology is not a big deal. Perhaps those people who think that they're smart enough to make that case never spoke to Paul. Maybe they've never read the book of 1 Thessalonians and seen chapter 5 in the first couple of verses because it's clear that the teaching of eschatology was a very big deal. And if we're not going to talk about eschatology, then you've got to ditch a good portion of the New Testament. So side by side, for me to be able to come to you this morning, I can say, first of all, we are supposed to be aware of the times around us and being aware of the times around us is because God has written about such things. And then secondly, don't teach the Old Testament. Well, first of all, whoever says that has no authority to make such a claim, and it's ridiculous on its face. 
And it also will take you away from recognizing that man's condition doesn't change. The times change, but man is still kind of rebellious. Have you noticed that a little bit? Now, of course, what I had Paul write or read this morning uh, in the verses 14 to 18, that is to let you know that there's a hopefulness. And I said, when he asked me, he goes, well, what text are you going to do this morning? I said, let me have you just read 14 to 18, because if I had you read the other stuff that we're going to deal with without any context, people would just get up and leave. Because it's harsh, it's, it's not easy to hear, but let's remember something. You're here on a Sunday morning, which chances are means that you're really, you're in the right place with God. The people that are being addressed here are not. So before we pray, let me just give you a little bit of the background of this. Because this is during the time of King Josiah. Now again, how far into the reign of Josiah was it? We know that within a couple of decades after Josiah had passed, then exactly what Zephaniah said was going to happen, happened. What's on the doorstep? The doorstep is that Babylon is gathering its power. And Babylon is going to be the vessel that God is going to use to judge his people. That's chapter 1 and a portion of chapter 3. What about the surrounding nations? They're going to get theirs too. That's in chapter 2. We won't touch much on that. We know what their problems were. What was going on in Judah? And why was it that Judah wasn't paying attention? They should have. The north is gone by this time. The Assyrians took care of that problem. And all the same problems happening in the north that caused their judgment are now happening in the south. And God addresses it. And I'm thankful for this, that God gives very specific instructions. I've got a problem with this. So if you're doing this, repent of it. We've heard a lot about repentance and trying to make a very good understanding or, or give us a good understanding of what that means. We know that it means turning from and, and all of that is accurate. But I'm kind of one of those visual types of people. And I can tell you that when it came to the point of repentance for me personally, I know the things that I used to embrace. And I know what God has asked me to embrace instead. And so if I'm trying to put it in a visual image and what we'll you know, be able to use as our picture for what's being said here through the prophet Zephaniah, is that God says, I see what you're holding on to. I see what you embrace. I'm asking you to let go of that. I'm asking you to leave your embrace of that and to turn, and I want you to embrace something else. To the Christian, that is for us to say our worldliness and our carnality and all the things that we have done and whatever it was that we have been a part of, God says make a clean break from that. Let go of it. Turn immediately in the opposite direction and behold the face of your savior and embrace him and everything about that from that moment on is going to change the way that you live your life because you're no longer embracing that stuff you've embraced him and he changes you in the most foundational of ways how easy is it to forget that that's our question this morning and we'll look at it through the eyes of Zephaniah and the promises that are made now the last thing I'll say on this when Zephaniah is prophesying He's prophesying to the nation of Judah. They're about to go into their captivity. We know that it lasts for 70 years. And we know why it lasts for 70 years. We find it in the last few verses of the last chapter of 2 Chronicles. And it's for every year that they did not give the land rest for 70 cycles, they're going to go into their captivity. And so basically, you never gave the land rest, Judah, so now I'm going to give the land rest from you. Away, 70 years. And he brings them back, not because they got their act together, but because he said so. And it is also important for us to recognize that even having all of the benefit of everything that he had ever said to them, yet they still rebelled. It is important for us to recognize that be watchful. Be ye watchful. 
is something that every believer should be doing as well. And we have so much history that we can look back in the Old Testament, even the New, and to recognize that man left to his devices will rebel. So it is for the church, day by day, moment by moment, to make sure, as Paul would say, examine yourself to see that you are in the faith. Because it is easy to start down the wrong road. And the longer that you wait for correction, the harder it is to get back on track. So I speak, ladies and gentlemen, to the remnant here. And let me assume that everyone in here is born again. And if that being the case and the rapture happened today, I've been saying this a lot lately, you would be a statistical anomaly compared to the rest of humanity. We would only be a fraction of mankind taken at the rapture. I'm convinced of that. Convinced of it. Because how many people are looking to the one who has saved them? And do they know him personally? Have they had that change of life that began in the spirit and now begins, begins to manifest itself in the life of that believer? So I speak to the remnant here, but I do so in the cautionary way as well, that we never rest on where we've been before, because that's what these guys did, and you'll see it in the text. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. As we come to you this morning, we ask that you would help us in our hearts and our minds to be attentive to your word, attentive to our own lives and examining these things as your Holy Spirit points it out to us, God, that we wouldn't be rebellious, that we wouldn't be looking the other way when you're speaking to us, but that we would hear the caution that is given to us through the years and through the ages. We thank you that you have preserved your word that we may know. And so we thank you. We give to you all praise and honor this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read Zephaniah and we take a look at this minor prophet once again, this is a a descendant of Hezekiah. And so he's prophesying at the time of Josiah, also of of that same line of kings of Hezekiah. And so this man is speaking to the nation who should know better. And yet they have begun to mingle the, the pagan uh, cultures and belief systems and try to make them somewhat incorporated with the worship of Jehovah. Those two things are completely incompatible and we know that. And yet as I survey the modern church, I recognize we're doing very much the same things. The pagan culture has made its way into the church. Not just the culture of paganism, but the religion of paganism has made its, well, its way in as well through much of the meditative practices and a variety of different things. Dwight has mentioned about uh, wide is the gate. We go into a lot of that detail in in those three different volumes of wide is the gate. Well, as we look at this, let me make sure I make one last statement and then we'll read the passage. But when you look at the way that this book is written, there is the pending judgment that is going to happen at the hands of the Babylonians. That's without question. And so the day of the Lord to the immediate sense of the people reading this, they're going to experience it when Babylon comes to town and takes them out. But then you'll notice that the promises that are found in the latter parts of chapter 3, they only have a partial fulfillment that God brought them back into the land, but that wasn't forever, right? Because by the time that Malachi, the last of the prophets to write, they had fallen back into the exact same kind of problems that led them to their captivity in the first place. And the promises made at the end of Zephaniah are eternal. So yes, you can look at prophecy and say there's an immediate fulfillment of these things, but for them to meet their, their you know, entire way of fulfillment, it's going to take a forever kind of a, a fulfillment. You can read that, it's pretty easy to see as you look at the text. But let's look at what some of the characteristic problems were at the time. 
You pick up in chapter 1 at verse 4, and it's where he's beginning to say why he's going to stretch out his hand. So the book of Zephaniah chapter 1, picking up at verse 4, he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, or the foreign god, the deity. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. Do you notice this? Carefully read these words. He identifies two groups of priesthood in Jerusalem. Not only the priesthood of the, of the line, the Levitical line, but with the pagans and they're intermingled. Notice what else he says. Those who worship on the, uh, the hosts of heaven on the housetops, those who swear oaths by the Lord, but also who swear by Milcom or Molech. Do you see the intermingling that is here? This is precisely what God said not to do. Remember all the way back at the Exodus when Moses and the children of Israel were in their infancy coming out of Egypt. God was already warning them, do not intermingle. Don't give your children to them to marry because they will corrupt you. I'm going to drive them out, God says. I will drive them out from among you. So that means that the ones that God drove out, they needed to seek those same people out and bring them back in. And it corrupted the people. So much so that God says, I'm giving you this as a warning. God, knowing the ends from the beginning, knows that they're not going to repent. So why warn them? So that they would be without excuse. That's the simple answer. Don't tell me that I didn't warn you. I gave you plenty of warnings. Remember how many prophets were saying similar things. What you have in Zephaniah is kind of a a very condensed version of what you see in much of the writings of Jeremiah. Very similar. Now, our church now, we've changed the name to Calvary Old Path, taken from Jeremiah 6. Very much the same kind of things going on there because God was really upset and saying, you know, the priests are telling the people, the prophets and all the people, the religious types are telling the people, no problem, peace, peace. And God says, but there is no peace. So they're telling the people, the the bad prophets, the bad priests are saying, don't worry about it. God's not upset. It's okay, peace, peace. And God says, uh no, they're coming. And they're coming because you, will ref- you refuse to repent. You refuse to turn back. Well, same thing is being said by Zephaniah here. And what is it that has gotten them in such trouble? Is the corruption of the, of the holy with the profane. It is happening in our church today. And I don't say this church. I say the church as a whole. And I've, I've said this back home. Churches like this one here like Charlie's and like the, the churches of the pastors that I know and with ours as well. If the devil shows up at the front door, we don't open it for him. We close it. The ushers know, don't let that guy in. He has no part in this. Well, he's patient. He knows what to do. And so the best way to go ahead and, and find corruption is to wait until you open the door to someone who does belong there. And then he just joins that party, walks in with them. And then the church becomes corrupted from within. It can happen because of the corruption of the pulpit, no question about it, but it can also be very easily corrupted from within. That's why Paul's warning that you see in Acts chapter 20 is very, very important when he talks to the elders at Ephesus. Guys, look out. As soon as I leave town, the wolves are coming, and they're going to come from within too, so you guys be careful. You're the overseers. Zephaniah, as he continues on in writing these things, this is a thus says the Lord. 
Look at what he says in verse 6. Those who have turned their back from following the Lord and they have sought the Lord, they have not rather sought the Lord, nor have they inquired with him. David had told us that we don't pray like we should. We don't worship like we should. We agree with that. And as I'm listening to David this morning, I'm thinking, goodness, this is amazing because it sounds like David could have come back out and did exactly what I'm doing here. He could have taken my session and just done it with his because it's a part A and part B in my estimation. But look at what is the problem here. They have not sought the Lord. They have not inquired. They had not turned their face to him, nor had they sought him for his counsel. Had they done that, God would have said, get the idols out. Remove the pagan priests from amongst you and any of you of the priesthood who are playing your games, get it together or you're out too. Had they sought the Lord, Father, what would you have us to do? Would you give us instruction? We inquire of you. Would you instruct us? They never did that. No wonder they had turned to such folly. So with our churches, how much have we gotten away from the Bible other than to either use it as an accessory or because the pastor has some idea of what he wants to say and then he finds a part of the Bible that will agree with him. But never allowing the scripture to speak for itself. There is danger in that. And again, it is all I've ever known for 33 years is that we come to the scripture and somebody would say, where are you going to be next week? I'm always able to say, I don't know, where were we this week? Because we'll pick right up there next week and we'll keep going through until we finish the book. Which is what we did with this. Did you teach every verse of Zephaniah? Well, of course. Why'd you do that? Because God wrote it. So who am I to pick and choose? Well, look at what he says. They haven't inquired. They haven't sought. And so here God says, be silent in the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and he has invited his guests. That's his way of saying, there's no turning back now. Now, had they repented as a people, would he have relented? You bet he would. But he's saying judgment's coming. Now again, it took probably at minimum another 20 years. But it wasn't as though they had not been warned. And this is why he does what he does. Now notice a little bit more of what we get of the details here. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. And it says, Now it will come to pass at that time that I will search out Jerusalem with lamps. What is that time? The time is the time when Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come. And they finally take them away into their captivity. Look at what he says here. I will search Jerusalem as with lamps and punish those who are settled in complacency. Here's the amazing thing. When you go looking through Jerusalem like with lamps, that means I don't think you understand just how thorough this is. If you think that you can hide in the deep, dark crevices, I've got lamps so I will be able to reveal even the dark places where you think that you can hide, but there will be nowhere for you to hide. Those people who are stuck in their complacency. I love to say when we look at the book of Revelation, we look at the seven churches and we see the characteristics of that. Bible teachers love to take a few different angles of that whole thing. Are they literal churches? Sure. Asia Minor. Okay, so the west coast of Turkey. Real places. Do they fit particular portions of time? Okay, you can make the case for that. And if we take that tack with it, and you can do the all of the above approach of looking at the, at the churches, because you'd want to say, if there was a caution to a church back then, well, then we should see if it has any application to us here and now. Laodicea, oftentimes, people say, oh, that's the end times church. Okay, well, what's the problem with the end times church of Laodicea? Well, it was into apostasy. 
prove that. Show me the apostasy. I'll show it to you in Pergamos. I'll show it to you in Thyatira. I'll show it to you in Sardis. Laodicea, what was their problem? We're cool. We got it all taken care of. We're good. We're self-reliant. We've got stuff. So Jesus says, you trust in your gold. You think that you're rich, but you're poor. You think that you can see, but you need salve for your eyes because they're diseased. So he tells them, you think that you've got it all together. You're complacent. They're apathetic. That's their problem. Now that's the first way that you start moving towards apostasy, no question. But theirs was one of apathy and indifference to the word of God. And so the Lord has very harsh things to say to them. Ladies and gentlemen, if we're going to try to make an application to the church, and let's be honest, you can look at any church, I don't care how good it is, and you have representatives from all seven within the pews. That's the reality of it. If we look at the church as a culture in our day and age in the West, it's Laodicean because it's sure that it has it all together. We don't need anything. We're great. We're good. I know those other problems or those things happening in the church, they're the problem, whatever. Well, complacency. Look at what it says. How does complacency look and can we see it in the church today? Look at what it says. These people say in their heart the Lord will do no good or not do, um, I'm sorry, the Lord will not do good nor will he do evil. That means that they are projecting onto God what they're like. He's indifferent. He doesn't care. It's no big deal. Don't get yourself all worked up. That is much of the church today because you realize, I hope, Maybe some of you have visited those churches and left them and you come here because you know what you're going to get. But those ones that would tell you to come on in the door, find a comfortable place, here's some popcorn and some coffee, make yourself at home. We're not going to challenge you with anything. We're going to tell you that everything is hunky-dory. We're going to pat you on the back and tell you that you're cool. I said this a couple of nights ago in Manitowoc. We see... The church, one of the great slogans that we're hearing in the church is that God has a wonderful plan for your life. And that sounds really good. But what about if your doctor calls tomorrow with a diagnosis that you weren't expecting? Think about that. Think about what might happen as you're on your way home from church today not thinking anything and somebody decides to run a red light. Is that God's plan and is it wonderful? Sure won't seem like it. God has a wonderful plan for your eternity. That I know. What happens between here and there? It can get dicey. We have no assurances of anything. So if somebody's trying to tell you that everything's going to be great until you go see God face to face, they are lying to you and they're selling you books. And it is for the church to say, that's baloney. In my session yesterday, I had, I had thrown out the possibility or the question can you imagine Joel Osteen handing Stephen a copy of your best life now before he's going to be martyred as the first man in the church? Hey, Stephen, I got a present for you. Signed copy of your best life now. Enjoy your stoning. It's pathetic. That's easy to preach in the West. I'd love to see them take Lakewood Church and put it in Kabul, Afghanistan and see how that would work out. The church is complacent. And again, I exclude the present company. You knew what you were going to get when you walked in the door here. Whether it was me or anyone else, we we're going to be careful with the word of God and let it speak. Could an Old Testament minor prophet have anything to say to us? 
Well, I hope that even just by reading a few of these verses, you'd say, yeah, he's got plenty to say. How many times are you given things from your friends and you trust it to read, and then you start to read through it and you go, what on earth am I reading? This is Christian books and things, but it's trying to lead me into practices that will provoke God. That's the stuff that's happened in the first part of what we've read, the mixture together of the profane and the holy. Now he goes on to there, you're complacent. What's worse is that you're projecting your own indifference and apathy to God as though he doesn't care. Oh, he's not going to do anything bad or anything good. It's all good. There's no judgment coming. Don't worry about such things. We hear it all the time in the pulpits. So God is pronouncing, he says, I'm coming. They don't turn. They're not moved by such things. So how does this happen? We get a little bit of a glimpse You've got the priests of the profane and the priests who should know what they're doing and they're doing the same exact thing and they're provoking God at every turn. Please don't try to tell me and don't try to make the case that the church is healthy in the United States. It is every bit as corrupt as it ever was during Zephaniah's time and we know what happened to them. So what do we see in chapter 3? That's a great question. Let's answer it. Chapter 3. He pronounces some woes to them. In chapter 3, he says, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, to the oppressing city. We know who that is. That's Jerusalem. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord, and she has not drawn near to her God. Now, it's an interesting litany of things. There are four things mentioned, and you could almost read them in reverse order, and you'll be able to see the the reason why the corruption came in. So let's do that, starting at the bottom of verse 2. They have not drawn near to their God. Now, the drawing near very simply means that, when you think about it this way, when we begin praying, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and you begin to pray, you begin to ask, you draw near to him. Now, remember, he is at all times waiting to receive you in, but he's waiting on you. He's ever present and ever ready. We're usually the ones running off in different directions, but in those times, when we say, Father, I come to you, and remember, we're able to say, I come to you only because I've been given the ability to do so because of your son, the way, the truth, and the life. So I put your scripture to good use. I buy into what you've told me. Well, they had not done that. They were not coming even in before him. Look at the second things. They have not trusted in the Lord. Well, why would you come before someone who you don't trust? Or you have no trust in him. You're not even trusting to come to him in the first place. You're not even trained to do so. So their problems begin to compound. They don't draw near to him because they don't trust him. Notice what else it says. She has not received correction. You'll never even hear the correction of the Lord because you never come to him because you don't trust him. You see the problem? It's foundational and as it builds up, it becomes further and further away from that which could be remedied starting at verse 2. She has not obeyed his voice. Well, you don't obey his voice because you're not hearing him and you don't hear him because you don't trust him. And you don't trust him because you don't even inquire of him. You never even come to him. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe again, this is much of the church. We go through the motions like there's no big deal. It's all good. I have said this and I know it always raises a few eyebrows, but I do say it for effect, but I absolutely believe it. I believe this. If sometime during the middle of this next week, the Lord was to return... 
and bring the church to himself, most churches would be open next Sunday morning like nothing happened. I mean that sincerely. That is not said for shock value. That is not said to try to be provocative or anything else. I think that's just an assessment of the church. I'd love to be wrong, but seriously, if anybody thinks you're out of your mind, please come prove that to me after service. Let's talk. So it goes on. Here's the problem. Verse 3, her princes in her midst are roaring lions. This is the this is the, the nobles, the people that are, you know, the, the princes and all the rest of those people. So the kings and all the, the people under him. At this time, Josiah is a good guy, but this helps you to understand that the people who should be under Josiah in that leadership of the nation, in the, in the, you know, in the, in the political, if you will, sense, these people, notice what it says about them, they are roaring lions. The judges, the ones who adjudicate things between the people, evening wolves the ones who attack at night and they leave nothing on the bone until morning. They devour the people. So the the judges who should be sitting between the people and making sure that things are done equitably, they consume the people and leave nothing of them. They're extorting and taking things from the people. Notice what else it says. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. The prophets, the ones who speak forth, are treacherous people in God's assessment here. Notice what else it says. The priests, the ones who stand here, the ones who mediate, the ones who work between God and man, these prophets and priests, the ones who are the ones supposed to be leading the people and representing them before God, look at what it says of them. They have polluted the sanctuary. Remember during Josiah's time, remember what happened, it's my paraphrase, hey uh, Josiah, we were kind of sweeping around in the temple, that thing that was kind of been boarded up for a while. And uh, we were clearing out some of the debris and we found this. The equivalent would be if some horrific thing happened in this church and it went completely sideways and 20 years down the road, some church comes in and buys the property and starts looking around and they're surprised to find a Bible in here. Hey, we found this. Well, that's great. What is it? I don't know. Seems like it's got some God stuff in it, so we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. Well, find somebody who knows what it is, which is exactly what they do. And then Josiah calls for this repentance and he, you know, the sackcloth and ashes and all that stuff. And they begin to really institute some genuine reforms. But it was so short-lived. So short-lived because it's easy to take your eye off of the prize. Well, They had polluted the sanctuary. Now, this is the part that is so amazing, and this is the most obvious of the problems that we have in the church today. They have done violence to the law. If you go watch, quote, unquote, Christian television, almost every single thing that you will hear from the mouth of the people that are teaching, quote, unquote, that stuff, they are doing violence to the text because the Bible becomes a means to an end. We've probably visited those churches. They'll put up a verse here or there once in a while, maybe at the beginning of the whole thing, and then the rest of it becomes philosophy or self-help type of motivation where they're going to go ahead and pump up your flesh and see, here's the proof, here's the Bible verse, that'll tell you. So it turns the church into a bunch of carnal narcissists just consumed with self, and the worship follows. Well, look at what happened before. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. If we see a repeating pattern here, let's wake up. Now, again, I, I, I recognize my audience here. 
I say this to you as a caution to make sure we never get to this place. Also to let you know and try to, try to put into a little bit of a context, what are we watching in the world in the name of the church? I don't get it. It's not without precedent. Here's a great example of it. It's just history repeating itself in a different covenant. But the same problem endures because man is the issue. So her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. The priests have polluted the sanctuary and they've done violence to the text. Notice this contrast. The Lord, however, he's righteous in the midst of her. He will do no unrighteousness. Remember the accusation? Ah, he's not going to do any good. He's not going to do any evil. He's basically indifferent, just like we are. He's probably not even paying attention. If that is your attitude, that will, will be the way that your church is going to look. And that's what we see happening around us. So it says, he's different. He will do no unrighteousness. Look at this. Every morning he brings his justice to light. Look at these words. He never fails. Oh, I love that. Now again, this isn't a pronouncement of judgment. Again, as contrast, look at the last part of verse 5. But the unjust, the unjust, know no shame. This was the condition of Judah before Babylon comes. So where's the good news to be found in this? You already heard it. Paul wrote, uh, read it for us a little bit earlier in verse 14. Starts there because it tells us, Now sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away your judgments and he has cast out uh, your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst and you shall see disaster no more. And in that day it shall be said of Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak, for the Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you in singing. Isn't that comforting? Now, we know that people may have thought that that was the case when God finally brought them back into the land after their captivity, but because we know that it's short-lived, God knows that this is future. Notice how it immediately changes in verse 19. It goes from God will do this and look at who's now speaking in verse 19. I will gather you. And that sets the rest of what it says. Notice how often he says, I will do these things. You see it again in verse 19. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame. Further down, I will appoint them for praise. Notoriety. This is what God will do at a future time. And so we await such a thing. Where do we find the New Testament where this is played out? One verse that probably captures it better than anywhere else is found in the book of Revelation. Turn with me there to chapter 21. Now, in Revelation 21, as I read this text to you, it is hard for me not to get choked up when I read this. Because this is the future not only for the remnant of Israel who walked rightly with God, who had awaited a Savior. I always love it, uh, thinking about it like this. You know, what, what happened when Jesus died? How did that affect all of the Old Testament saints? The book of Hebrews says that before he ascended, he descended. And he led the captives out of their captivity. You know what that would have looked like? And I always think of it like this. This is just such a cool thing. I want to see the moment that David first laid eyes on Jesus. David says in Psalm 16, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. As I consider that, 
I try to wrap my mind around David being able to say, I knew this day was coming. Because he had been taken to a place reserved for the faithful, who could never go to heaven because redemption hadn't been completed. But when Jesus finished his work, it was finished. He was able to go and take all of those people, we call it paradise, the bosom of Abraham, whatever you want to call it, that place where all of the people that we would recognize of the Old Testament had awaited that day. And here comes Messiah. It's finished. Let me take you home. As I consider that and think through this, I know that the future for those people and for us, whether we meet him face to face at the rapture or whether we pass from this life because these bodies give out, this is what all who have died in faith have in common and it is what will take place. Revelation chapter 21 Remember, we just read in Zephaniah where it says that he's in their midst. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, is with them. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. So Zephaniah writes those things at God's direction talks about the time when he restores all things and walks among his people. He'll be in their midst. We wait until John is able to write the book of Revelation and he gets the further understanding of that. And we really see it in its fullness. We recognize that it's just not God as they understood him. Do you really appreciate this church? When Jesus said to Philip in John 14, when he says, if you just show us the Father, it'll be enough. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? Don't you know? If you've seen me, you've seen him. Now here we have in Revelation where it says God will be among his people. Jesus walks among us. The Father is there gathered together with his people. John gives us that detail in the book of Revelation. A foreshadowing of it was given in some way to Zephaniah to be able to write these things. So once again, before we do the last part of this, I would like to once again address the critics of people who say, why would you spend any time in the, in the Old Testament? How can you not? The Old Testament gives context to what we read in the New. If I, ever, if I was to ever have someone come to me personally and say, you teaching through the book of Zephaniah on Sunday morning was a complete waste of time, I'm, I'm probably just feisty enough to say, you have just demonstrated the depth of your ignorance by saying that. You have no appreciation for the word of God, nor do you have the authority to pick and choose. Shame on you. Especially if it's somebody in a place of prominence. And yes, we have leaders within the, quote, church making that absurd statement. Ridiculous on its face. So what we did by finishing Zephaniah, we took a number of weeks getting through it. And really we moved through chapter 2 very quickly because he addresses the foreign nations. He's not even talking to Judah. We spent most of our time making sure that we understood in thorough in a thorough understanding of chapters 1 and 3. Because yes, they are speaking absolutely directly to, to Judah. That's not questioned. But what we do know is that whatever God has taken the time to write, independent of your covenant, is there any application to be made here? And you would say, not only is there application to be made, we are finding the church falling into the same folly that caused God's judgment on Judah. So here we see it full circle. Now, here's what happens maybe, like I said, maybe 20 years later. Babylon comes, 
The judgment falls upon them. Everything that was promised was going to happen has happened. They've been taken away in their captivity and they're gone for those 70 years. This is during the time Ezekiel's doing his thing, Daniel's doing his thing, the writing is taking place there in the captivity. And then you have the whole episode that happens with Esther. You have a guy named Zerubbabel that begins to be sent back to start the whole process. He's going to go back and begin the the rebuilding of the temple. He's going to take care of the house of God. We know that he'll be followed thereafter by Nehemiah and Ezra. And so there's a really wonderful picture there is that Rebuild the temple because that's the dwelling place of God. And that's the center corporate place of worship for the people of Israel. Start there. And once that that place of right, responsible worship is done, then put walls around it. Make sure that it is safe from the outside. Make sure that it is a place where God's people can gather without having to worry about their enemies. And then, oh, by the way, when Ezra shows up, make sure that the right place and the right way of worship is now instituted and taken care of. And God brings them back in those stages. So it's much longer than 70 years by the time that that's fully in place. But what happened during Zerubbabel's time, the beginning of those things? It is the very next book. And we'll just look at a couple of things here. Before we read these bits and pieces, let me just ask some questions. If everything that God said would happen, happened, God continues to communicate with his people even in their captivity, and he even finds a way, actually only God could do so, to save them from what would have been a genocide at the hands of Haman, all of that has taken place. God has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a couple hundred years before the fact, or a hundred years plus before the fact, he names Cyrus by name before he's even born and says, that's the one that I've chosen. He's going to send my people back. All of this has taken place. You have every conceivable benefit. And now here is Zerubbabel. Cyrus says, go back and do what you're going to do. Oh, and let me help you pay for that. Consider it back wages. That's all taken place. They couldn't have goofed that up, right? Wrong. Chapter 1 of the book of Haggai. Next book over. What has transpired? They've been back in the land for 20 years by this time. So what's taken place? They've got some altars set up. Not much else. Certainly not anything like what Solomon had given. Wasn't much there. Look at what it says. So then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lie in ruin? Oh man, if you understand what is being said there, here's the translation, or here's the, here's the behind the scenes paraphrase of that. So you guys, you've been here for 20 years. Nice houses. What about mine? Does God need a house to dwell in? Not hardly. The heavens can't contain him. So why is God concerned about a house? He's concerned about the heart of the people who would say, we don't need a corporate place of worship. No big deal. We got our own things to take care of. You see the danger in that? God calls them out on it. You got time to build your own houses, but the place where I would be where you could come to me and meet with me, you don't even care about it. After 20 years, you don't care about it. What is the first thing that he says after the indictment? Read it with me, ladies and gentlemen. What does it say? What does verse 5 say? 
Consider your ways. Consider your ways. So to the modern church. Zephaniah giving way to Haggai would say this. Zephaniah would tell you, be careful what your corporate worship looks like. Make sure that you are never mixing the profane with the holy at any time. Make sure that your prophets and your priests make your modern application. Make sure that they never pollute the sanctuary by allowing the profane in and make sure that they never do violence to the text. Also, make sure that they recognize and warn you constantly that I am not indifferent as you are. God would say that he is indeed holy. Letting him also know that even in your waywardness, I'm a God of restoration and I will have my will done. My will is to walk in your midst in spite of you and the things that you do, because I love you. Oh, and by the way, when you get to that place of comfort and things have been restored, do not once again become complacent and start being concerned about your own things and not mine, because I will be telling you once again, consider your ways. Wow. Poignant. So important that we recognize this. These are the days in which we live. How long will the Lord leave us here? I have no idea. Will we be able to stay in the level of comfort that we've been able to so far? Only if God is going to be incredibly merciful, because we don't deserve it as a church. I believe that there will be a remnant that is there when he returns. That I'm sure of. I want to make sure that I am part of that remnant. I don't care about what the church is doing. I don't care about the modes and the methodologies and all the different church growth movements and all that nonsense because here's the bottom line to it, especially if you were here yesterday. Whatever it is that they're selling today, if this country ever became hostile towards the church like it is in most of the rest of the world, the church would fold like a cheap suit because they're not invested in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're invested in the four walls. And they're invested in all the good, you know, for the feel good, pat me on the back, tell me everything's going to be okay. They've tried that before in Zephaniah's time. And look at how that ended up for them. Were they all corrupt? No. But many had to pay the consequence for, or few had to pay the consequence for the many. I believe we we're very much in the same place. But at the same time, I am assured of this. Jesus will walk in our midst. So Lord, haste the day. Father, we thank you. We can come to your word at any time. We can open any book, any page. And we can know for sure that what you look to do is communicate to us a seriousness about what we believe and at the same time the assurance to those that are the faithful that you will see to us. We will never be left abandoned. We have a face to put with the name of Messiah. We know him. He knows us. We have the comfort and the peace of fellowship with him. And so we thank you. We pray that for each of us who are here, that at all times we would be looking at our lives. What's going on with us? Are we in the place of seeking you out? Are we hearing your voice? Are we allowing correction when it's necessary? Are we rebellious or do we accept the things that you have to say and what you require? God, be glorified in us, we ask. Help us to be mindful at all times and help us also to be willing to warn those who are in their complacency, recognizing that we want to get them from the place of complacency to a place of walking rightly before you. God, we thank you. We give you all praise and honor for your word that challenges us but gives us hope. We give you all praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.